Hey everyone, it's Blake. We are getting very close here to the 100th episode of the show. And for the 100th episode, I am going to finally do an episode that you guys have been asking for for quite a while, which is an episode about me and what it's like to have a podcast, how I started my podcast, any sorts of questions like that. So I'm going to have my wife interview me for that episode, but I wanted to get all of the questions from you. So if you have a question that you would like to ask me about myself or about the show or whatever it is, having a podcast, to start a podcast, feel free to email me at blake at halfhourintern.com or you can just click on the email icon at the bottom right of the halfhourintern.com homepage. Thanks so much. On to the show. When you first take a knife out of the oven um, and quenched it, like I do, stick it in oil, stick it in molten salt or between aluminum plates to cool it down rapidly, it's so hard that if you drop it on a concrete floor, it'll shatter into little pieces. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Jimmy Seymour, who is a bladesmith. Um, but we are going to really talk about the hobby of knife making and how someone could get started knife making. And uh, he'll also give us some advice about like what you should look for in a kitchen knife and what you should look for in a pocket knife and how much you should plan on spending um, and just kind of everything related to knives we talk about in this episode. So without further ado, here is knife making. Jimmy, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So why don't we start with just the basic, basic process of making a knife? Are there like multiple different ways that you can make a knife? Is there only one way to make a knife? Like how would one get started? Oh, there's definitely more than one way to skin a cat here. Um, You have three ways of making a knife. You have stock removal, which is grinding it out of the steel. You'll start with the bar of steel and you'll just grind everything away until it's a knife. You have forging where you take it like I do, take it into a propane forge, heat it up, forge it into shape, and then go from there. And then you have uh, knife kits that you can actually buy where the blade's already done and you just put the handle on it. That's where a lot of people get started. And then after a while, they're like, hey, you know what? I really want to start making my own blades as well. And they'll move into the either stock removal or forging. Yeah, that's really cool. So with the knife kit, it's kind of a decent way to just get accustomed to knives and working on them in any capacity like you might not have made the blade but you're at least going to customize this to some extent the way that you want it by putting a handle on it the way that you want it or whatever it is exactly it's a very low buck way to kind of stick your feet in the water test if this is something you want to do okay cool and i so it sounds like then the next thing up would be stock removal is that what you called it yeah stock removal is your less next expensive way of doing that and you can uh um Spend as little as 50 bucks for the tools and do it that way. It's going to be very labor intensive. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you have uh, like the cheaper tools, like you were saying, uh, so that I imagine would just be um, different, like files and stuff like that. to like file away the metal. Yeah. Files, uh, an angle grinder will move a lot of metal too. Um, But that takes some, uh, you know, some finesse. If you're not used to it, you know, you're like, oops, didn't mean to take off metal there. And unfortunately, (laughs) once you you remove the metal, you can't put it back. Um, 
And then the next step would be forging, which is even more expensive because you have to buy all the forging equipment. So let's, um, even though you said that right now what you do it, it, for the most part is forging, and we'll we'll talk about that more later. Let's let's spend a bit of time talking about stock removal then, because it sounds like that's kind of the nice like middle of the road where you really are crafting the entire knife yourself. But it's something that a beginner could do, um, and it's not something that's like really going to um, to break the bank. So if you're doing stock removal. Um, where first of all like where are you getting these stocks from where are you getting these pieces of metal from ah unfortunately good cutlery steel you can't just go down to home depot and buy that stuff that they sell at home depot that's not you know high quality uh steel that you can make a any type of knife out of so you're going to have to either go to an industrial hardware store and there's one here in las vegas but most cities don't have industrial hardware stores so you're going to have to order it online there's places uh the new jersey steel bearing of course He's out of New Jersey, Admiral Steel, any nice supply house. Um, and I sent you uh, an email with a bunch of links to places like that. Yeah, we'll put those uh, up on the website for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You guys can go there and order it for like 20 bucks. You can have enough steel delivered to your home to make you four or five knives. So the steel's not very, not too terribly expensive. It's just unfortunately you can't buy it locally. Um, if you do want to make it out of leaf springs, if there's a leaf spring, place that manufactures leaf springs in your city you can go there and sometimes they'll sell you virgin stock and it's usually 5160 which will make a pretty decent knife okay so 5160 i know from uh from some research i did before this interview is a type of steel so let's talk about the metals that are used and their properties and like so if you're buying steel to uh to make some like kitchen knives with or something like that what type of steel do you need and like, what are the different types of, of steels that are used? And what are the metals that, that are in this steel that make for, for good knives? Uh, okay, you have three main classifications for cutlery steel. You have high carbon steel, high carbon tool steel, and then you have your stainless steels. I normally only work with high carbon steel and high carbon tool steels uh, because I can forge those. You can't forge stainless steel. Um, I do make stainless steel knives because during the summer months here in Vegas, it's just too hot to forge. And so I'll just go right back into stock removal making. And some people do request knives made out of stainless steel. So I'll make them out of them. Uh, for a chef knife, the knife I would use, the steel I would use is 52100, which is actually a ball bearing steel. It wasn't made for cutlery at all. It was made for ball bearings. And it is, gets a grain structure that is so fine that for a kitchen knife or very thin knife, it's just amazing. Um, I think... Uh, Master Smith Bob Kramer is really famous for making those. I can take a a bolt and cut it in half with one of those kitchen knives and you know it'll stay razor sharp. Wow. Yeah. And this, is that steel any more expensive than the previous steel that you mentioned? Uh it, it is because it's hard to get. Because it's made for bearings, it comes in round stock. So if you were to make a knife out of it, you have to either bring it to somebody like me and have it have them forge it flat for you. Or you have to go to somebody like New Jersey Steel Bearing, where he will take it and he'll roll it in his uh, machine shop, or he's got a complete steel mill. They'll roll it out into sheet form and cut you off a slice. And because of that, you know, it is a little bit more expensive. Last time I priced it, though, it was actually cheaper than uh, some carbon steels because I, I think they just made a whole bunch of it. And right, so right now, supply and demand. Supply and demand. Yeah, there's more of it available. Interesting. Than there used to be. And so are the different types of steel 
um, and the different costs and all that, is it basically just different amounts of carbon in the steel or, or are there different properties as well that are going to kind of influence the price? Well, there's different influence. Uh, stainless steels are very expensive. Uh, not only do you have the extra chromium in the steel that the high carbon tool steels don't have, that which makes it stainless, uh, you have all these other, um, they have to put uh, vanadium in it that keeps the grain from growing. Uh, molybdenum, uh, tungsten, uh, all these other uh, alloys in it, which are actually used to uh, um, make carbides to cut with, which is actually stronger than the steel. So the iron in the, in the metal that actually holds everything together, kind of think of it as Play-Doh. You know, it's really soft. Uh, you can harden it, but not too hard. And then all your molybdenum, the vanadium, your tungstens, and all those other things, they're like little pieces of glass inside that Play-Doh. So when you cut something, the glass is going to be much harder than the Play-Doh, and that's going to uh, influence how well it holds an edge. And it's just kind of like sprinkled throughout the entire thing. Right, right. And, you know, the more fine it is, you know, all that stuff, the the better the edge it holds. Because as the uh, Play-Doh tears off when you're cutting, It'll tear out those big chunks of glass. The so the smaller, the finer the glass, the uh, better it holds an edge. Oh, that's that why makes the, a lot uh, of sense. Yeah, yeah. The powdered metallurgy, the CPM steels, they're the same stainless steels, but they're much finer, and because of all the extra processing, they're much more expensive. Okay, and you you've used the term grain a couple of times now. You said like the grain could grow on a knife. And oh, so, right. Like what what do you mean when you say grain? Okay, uh, steel's actually a crystal. It's got a crystalline structure, and like crystals, uh, if it heats up. The crystal actually grows. So, what you want to do is you want, and all the you got a, uh, a very minimum you want it. Uh, if it's too too coarse, um, you'll the knife will easily break and it'll look like a lava rock on the inside. Um, you mean like so, porous, like lots of porous yeah, and stuff? Yeah, it'll be really porous. It's it's really hard to it's really hard to describe without showing people. Yeah. Uh, the way I the way I was taught, we t- we stuck it in the forge and it came out looking like a sparkler, you know, because we got way too hard. We quenched it, and it really easily broke with a just hammer on the anvil, you know, just broken pieces, and it was really gnarly looking. It was really porous, you know. The gr- you can actually see the grain when it's that bad. It's interesting because I think a lot of people would just think like, oh, naturally, you just want a knife as as strong as possible and in in terms of strong as possible they would just assume that that means you want the knife to be as hard as possible um so it can cut things but it sounds like especially with your play-doh reference and in the um the iron being more like the glue um that if you keep on heating this thing up and cooling it down and heating it up and cooling it down that that's what makes it harder and harder but at a certain point it's like it's too hard and now it's it's like dried play-doh and it's just gonna crack Right, right. Yeah, you can definitely harden it too much. Uh, after you harden it, you're going to have to go through a process called tempering. When you first take a knife out of the oven um, and quenched it, like I do, stick it in oil, stick it in molten salt, or between aluminum plates to cool it down rapidly, it's so hard that if you drop it on a concrete floor, it'll shatter into little pieces. Wow. Now, granted, that's not a very useful knife, you know, if it's that hard. So then you have to take it back into the oven, usually around 400 degrees. And every steel has its own. Uh, temperature at which it temperatures and heat treats due to all the different alloys in it. And um, so for the steels I use, it's usually around 400 degrees for two hours. And that brings it back to a serviceable hardness. Okay. Um, 
So let's talk about how long this takes. So if you're doing stock removal and you're making, let's say, like a 10-inch long kitchen knife, how long is it going to take you to go from the knife itself looking almost like a file, you know, just being like this flat rectangle, to it looking like a knife? In my shop, um, I would say three to four days if I have three to four days, I mean, uninterrupted time to work on it. Wow. Um, if you're doing this with angle grinders and hand files, I would suggest one to two weeks is probably an accurate time. Okay, because you have machines that help you out with the process. Right, cost, right. I, machines I have, that cost yeah, more money. Some, yeah, exactly. Okay. But if you're just starting out and all you're using is files and an angle, angle grinder, one to two weeks is reasonable time. Wow. For one single knife. That's so interesting. We kind of glossed over a lot of the process for stock removal. So why don't you just go ahead and take us through making a knife, like from start to finish? Okay. Um, first, some of the some of the tools. If I'm doing stock removal method, uh, some tools I want to recommend is a Portaman bandsaw. You can buy them at Home Depot, uh, usually a Milwaukee or a Dewalt for a couple hundred bucks. But you can buy a table that swag off road cells and mount it on there and have the same quality bandsaw as some of the big machine shops have. So that'll save you a ton of time cutting it out. Um, so what I'm going to start with, I have a bar of steel and I'm going to draw my pattern out on this bar of steel. There's a few things that you never want to do. Uh, no 90 degree corners. That's a big no, no, no holes close to the, uh, the choil area. The choil area is the transition between the blade and the handle. You know, if you take material science course or anything, they'll tell you, once you put a hole in a piece of steel, you've really taken away a whole lot of its strength. Since that's going to be the mo- that's the stress point, you don't want any holes there. And if you do have to put them there, make them make sure they're small. So once I've got my design, then I'm going to cut it out. And you can use a hacksaw, which I've done for many, many years, which is the cheapest way to go. And that's why I want to recommend, you know, this, hey, go get you a Portaman. It's one of the greatest knife making things ever. Every knife maker I know, it doesn't matter how famous they are. They're like, oh, yeah, get this. You need this. Uh, and then um, once I get it close, then I can either take an angle grinder or a file and take it down to my lines that I've drawn on there. Now you want to drill your holes. And this is where you got to be careful. The drill press is probably one of the most dangerous tools in the knife maker shop. Because if you mess up and that drill press catches the blade, it's going to spin it around. So now you got a knife blade spinning from a machine and your hands are right there in a position. Wow, yeah. And it doesn't matter if the blade's sharpened or not. If it's just got the 90-degree edge or the rough edge from the filing and stuff, it'll cut you pretty bad. Uh, and I've known a lot of knife makers have their careers really ended on the drill press. If, you're, if you just got a regular drill, you're laying on a piece of wood, standing on it with your feet and drilling through it because all you got is a, just a uh, portable drill. Same thing. You know, just be careful. Um, so drill your holes. And the next most important thing when you what? drill your holes you got to chamfer your holes, which is take away the 90-degree edge from the hole. So kind of file away like the edges of the, of the holes? Yeah, you want to get a, um, see, what do they call it? A deburr. You can either get a deburr, uh, a, cham- a chamfer uh, tool, and uh, that will take away the 90-degree edge. Now, what are you even um, drilling these holes for in the first place? Well, you, you got to have some way to attach the handle. Okay. I'm sorry. Th- this is for your pins. So that you can put pins or uh, 
Corby rivets to hold it together. Okay, so you don't just glue on a handle. You're actually going to physically pin a handle in place. Yeah, you, you always yeah you always got to have a mechanical um, a mechanical advantage holding the handle on. If it's not mechanical, it won't last because epoxies and all sorts of uh, glues they evaporate over time, and every time they get too hot or too cold, they lose their strength. So if you're putting a knife together and you're relying on glue alone, well. You, Eventually, you know, the glue is going to give up. Right. And basically your handle is going to fall off. So after your so holes, then you, the next part would just be putting a handle on it? Right. Well, you, you still got to, you still got to uh, grind your blade either with, and what I like to do is take an angle grinder and knock off the majority of the metal. If I'm going to do it by hand, uh, if you don't have an angle grinder, you're going to have to do what they call draw filing, which is. You put the file on the on the edge of the blade where you want the edge to be, and you work it back and forth, and you get used to it. You're going to be there for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, that's the part where it's going to take someone about two weeks to make a knife if they uh, don't have yeah. uh, a whole setup. Yeah, I think I made my first dozen knives that way. Okay. Well, actually, before you do that, you want to scribe a center line right down the edge, and you want to leave about 20 thousandths uh, of meat there on both sides. So you basically center, center line and 10 thousandths on each side. And you don't want to go any closer to that because when you heat treat the steel, uh, if you're too thin, you can actually lose carbon. Uh, you get what they call carbon migration where the carbon on the outside, the steel actually just comes off. And if you have no carbon, your edge won't uh, harden. Hmm. So now once you get that done, your holes drill comes the fun part, heat treating it. If this is your first knife, there's a lot of places that heat treat steel. Just send it off. Um, if you got a forge, you can uh, do it in your forge. But if you have an acetylene torch, you can heat up the edge and quench it in oil. But my my recommendation is send it off to somebody who uh, professionally heat treats steel. Um, usually, a lot a lot of the places that you buy the steel from, they also heat treat the steel as well. Okay. So wherever you bought the steel from, send it back to them. They'll heat treat it. Uh, they'll charge you 10 to $20 a knife. Everybody kind of varies. And then once you get it back, now you got a hardened blade. Then you can put your handle on, uh, make a sheath for it if you're going to make a sheath. And then the very last thing you do after you've done all the work you've done to it, polish it, then you sharpen the blade. And before you sharpen it, I imagine, like you said, it's still going to be pretty darn sharp. Like you could injure yourself the whole time. Right, right, right. He, even the twenty thousandths of an edge. Um, actually, you know, medieval European swords were actually pretty dull for a reason, so that you could grab the sword by the blade and hit people with a big pommel on the end of the sword. <laughs> no way! I never knew that. Yeah. So you know the the cuts that they did was just off edge geometry alone. Huh. Just the, just the geometry of the cutting edge and the force was enough to you know cut people in half. Right. Right. So. So all you need is a, something wedge-shaped, even though it's dull, you know, with enough force. And you, if you're using a, something like a drill press or something, that force, you know, that's that's enough to seriously injure you. Yeah. So, Jimmy, you've been making knives for about, like, 20 years now, or, or longer than that even, right? Yeah, yeah, longer. <laughs> yeah, so you've been making knives for a good portion of your life, and there's a lot of... Um, so I just went to Japan for my honeymoon and uh, there's just so many beautiful knives being sold there. And it's interesting because when you're in a knife shop and you're asking questions, um, 
you'll talk to a guy and he'll be like, oh, like, you know, kind of like, I'm just the apprentice. Like, I, you know, I don't, I don't know much. Like, you should talk to one of the masters here. And then you ask him, like, how long he's been doing it for? And it's like, oh, like, I've been doing this only for, like, six years or something. And it's like, that's, that's very much like a Japanese cultural thing, right? They're like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know anything. I've only been doing it for six years. But what, like, what is the difference for you and for these other people between doing it in year like five or six versus doing it in year like 20? Like, are you still learning things? Are you still getting oh. better at this? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm always constantly learning because you're always learning from different people. Right now, there's a big influx from uh, Russian knife makers, and they have techniques and uh, you know really cool stuff that I've never seen before. And I'm like, oh, wow, how are you guys doing that? And you know, they're, they're more than happy to show you. Um, so yeah, even after 20 years, I've never learned it all and you'll never learn it all. Um, yeah, I go to as many hammer ends as I can, which is just a knife makers get together. Usually you pay a registration fee and that pays for the instructors and various knife makers from around the world will just show up and like, Hey, this is how you smelt your own steel. You know, you're like, Oh, cool. You see how you do that, you know, and you sign up for it and you go out there and you help them and you'll smelt your own steel. That's really um, cool. Do you ever, yeah, like, since you know so much about this now and you've been doing it for so long, when you make knives, are you like, yeah, these knives are badass? Or is it almost the other way around where you're just like, <laughs> you can see all these faults in it because you know oh, so no. much? Exactly. I make a knife, you know, and everybody's like, oh my God, that's so awesome. I'm like, no, there's a fault there. There's, you know, <laughs> you know, there, there's a, and you know, they're not really faults. It's just that I had intended for something else to happen. And that didn't happen, so I had to adjust it. So it's not really that you know it's bad or anything, but I'm just disappointed because it didn't come out exactly the way I had it in my mind. Yeah. How mm-hmm. like if someone were just starting out, like what are their first knives going to be like? Are they like let's say you wanted to make <laughs> yourself a kitchen knife and you was your right. very first knife ever? Are you like absolutely never going to be able to chop a tomato with that first kitchen knife? Are you just going to be like squishing tomatoes with it, or can you make a pretty yeah. decent knife your first go? Well, okay, if you do the research and look at these YouTube videos and stuff, yeah, you can you can definitely make a serviceable knife um if you just hey i'm just going to try this because it's something i want to do and this is kind of what i heard yeah you're going to have quite a steep learning curve uh there are places you can go to actually learn how to do this stuff and you can take lessons and if you do that that will really up your learning curve you know very quickly you could do within six years you could be one of the premier knife makers in the world wow crazy yeah Let's talk about um, Japanese knives versus European knives because there, there's like an entire different style of knife there, right? Right, right. What makes Japanese a Japanese knives, blade versus a European blade? Well, it, they have a different philosophy on the knife altogether. To the Japanese, the knife is made to cut. It doesn't matter what you whether it's to cut vegetables, to cut bamboo. Um, you know, it's made to cut and nothing else. European uh, European knives, a knife is a tool. Yeah, it cuts, but it's also a pry bar. It's also a, you know, a, a survival tool. Uh, so European wa- version is it's got to take a lot of abuse. And the Japanese idea is like, nope, it's to do one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to cut. Hmm. Uh, to cut. You know, a sushi knife is to cut fish. A chef knife is to cut vegetables. Um, gardening tools, you know, it's to cut this specific thing. 
And so that's why you, you also have a very different style. Uh, theirs is ground different. Um, even their swords, you know, the Cantana is designed for one thing only to cut, you know, of course, people, but through the type of armor that the Japanese and everything used. Um, Amer- European swords, they're designed to be bashed on metal, um, you know, people, um, stuff of that sort. So there's a huge difference in design because they had two very different philosophies on how knives and swords were supposed to be di- used. Yeah, definitely. So in your mind, what makes a particular culture, like you mentioned, uh, like what's happening in Russia right now and stuff, like what makes a particular culture's knives or what makes a particular knife maker's knives so special? Well, I, you know, that's kind of hard to say. It's got to be, I would say it's the person's personality. Um, Grant, they, they got the craftsmanship. They got their style. Everybody kind of developed their own style. And once their craftsmanship gets to a certain level, you're like, wow, my stuff's really good. You'll look around like, well, so are th- literally thousands of other knife makers. <laughs> but what, yeah. but, you know, I hate to say it, you, you can cut bolts in half and well, guess what? You're just average. You know, I hate to say it, but what makes one knife maker stand over the other is just their personality, how they sell themselves. Because most people, when they go to buy a custom-made knife, when they're looking at other custom knife makers, it's not necessarily the knife that sells people. It's the personality of the knife maker. Yeah, that's very true. Like so much in life, right? How about age? Yeah, I, like would you would you sooner buy a knife from a really old guy than from a younger guy? Just kind of assuming that the old guy had, you know, uh, been through it all and, you know, was more likely going to make a good knife? <laughs> no no it is well first of all when, whenever i go to knife shows and everything and i'm looking at knives i I'm, i walk up and down the tables actually pretty quickly and if your knife you know if you don't have something that stands out and grabs my attention of course you know there's certain styles of knives i really like if it grabs my attention then i'm gonna stop and i'm gonna come to your table then i'm gonna talk to you i'm gonna shake your hand hey how long you've been doing this you know what's your heat treating techniques talk about techniques and if you get, if you say like, oh, I do something that's kind of like, oh no, that's kind of hokey. You know, I'm like, okay, yeah, thanks. I'm I'm not really interested. Then I'll move <laughs> on. So it, it really doesn't matter the guy's age because you, we got people who you know started making knives like me and they're 13. So this guy's 26 years old. So he's got 13 years of experience, and you know he's he's definitely younger than the um, older guy, but he's got all the you know he, he treats it and everything just right and. We talk and we, you know, we just bond right away. I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm definitely buying a knife from him. Mm-hmm. Definitely. If somebody wants to buy, is listening to this and wants to buy some really great, um, like kitchen knives, let's say for cooking, like what, what elements should someone be looking for exactly when they're looking at kitchen knives? Okay. Uh, it, kitchen knives. If you buy anything out of the big box retail stores, I hate to say it, but it's crap. I mean, it really is. It's, um, they're all made to be disposable. If you go to like your Walmart or your target or anything like that, any kitchen knife you buy, it's, it's made to be disposable. As soon as it gets dull, they expect you to throw it away and go buy another one. Um, but once you get past that, you're like, Hey man, I'm really getting tired of, you know, my knives always going dull and stuff. First thing you gotta do is make sure it's made of high quality steel. And that doesn't matter whether it's high carbon, high carbon tool or stainless steel. They make high quality of an all of it. Um, 
is it properly heat treated and does does it appeal to you? That, that's the biggest thing. And how so can much- you tell either of those first two things? How can you tell if they're using high quality steel, and how can you tell if it was properly heat treated? Um. Well, unfortunately, you just got to do research. So <laughs> I, there's, there's probably no watch like a YouTube it. video on that. No, I wouldn't say necessarily a YouTube video. I would go to a knife forum, and there's actually for kitchen knives. There's a, uh, I think it's Chef Knives to Go. It's actually an uh, it's a website where not only do uh, custom knife makers, but uh, small companies put their chef knives, and they're all reviewed by other people. So you can go on there and like, oh look, three hundred twelve people say this is a good knife. Wow. Okay. Cool. Uh, odds are three hundred twelve people, or you know, yeah, some of the reviews might be kind of hokey, but three hundred twelve people. Yeah, that's a good knife. Yeah, and the fact that the whoever made the knife was willing to put it up to that scrutiny to begin with, with people that actually know their stuff with knives. That's right. So, yeah, I'll definitely put a link to that on the website. What what should people look at spending? Because I think that's probably, I would imagine, and maybe I'm wrong, that if people have just been buying knives their whole lives from big box stores, that a that there's going to be a bit of sticker shock with buying uh, quality knives for the kitchen. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, what are you looking at spending per knife? Yeah. Um, okay. Um, a chef knife, I would say anywhere from 300 to $600 for one single for blade. Right. But again, that blade will last you a lifetime. Okay. Um, so you, you also take that into fact. Um, yeah. Chef knives are kind of, and then, then if you get into Damascus, you're talking anywhere from a hundred to a thousand dollars, depending on the maker per inch. Yeah. So, so let's. All right. That's something I wanted to talk about. So let's go ahead and talk about that right now. Damascus steel. Okay. Like everyone's heard of Damascus steel. What is it exactly, and why the heck does it cost so much? <laughs> okay. There's uh, two types of Damascus steel. You have pattern welding, which most people see today. That's called Damascus steel. Uh, that's actually just powdered welding steel, but everybody called it Damascus, and it kind of stuck. Damascus steel was actually a crucible steel, uh, and it's called overseas. It's called Wootz, and Russia it's called Balat. What that steel was is it was a it's kind of the precursor of the way all modern steels are made, and it was made in a crucible, and they added their iron and their carbon and whatever else. And what is a crucible? a crucible? Like a like a mixing ah, pot a, for metals. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it was made of either clay or ceramic or whatever, you know, they're using. And the steel is melted into it, and all the impurities float to the top. And what you're left with is a pretty pure steel. And because they had these in these giant furnaces, they had to wait for it to cool off, and it cooled off very slowly. And when you do that, the carbides in the steel, which we talked about earlier with the vanadium and the tungsten and everything, it kind of forms layers and plates out. And whenever they would take the steel and they would forge it out, you could see those layers of different uh, material that they had that came from the original mine. And that gave it the pattern of Damascus. They are Damascusine, what, what people call. And all that is is just different layers of elements coming out of the steel. Interesting. So and when you course, see those different layers on knives, is that always Damascus steel or are there kind of less expensive ways to make those little like layer work as it were on knives? No, uh, for the most part, everything you see now is pattern welding where you take two different uh, steels of two different carbon content, forge weld them together, 
and make patterns out of it. So say take we go back to the Play-Doh thing. If you take white Play-Doh and black Play-Doh and you stack them together and you make draw it out, fold it over, many times it take different layers. And then say you twist the whole thing up and then cut it in half. Well, that'd be a twist pattern on a knife. Mm, yeah. So that's what you're seeing. The original Damascus was actually a a process from the steel making that made the uh, uh, the car- carbides and different al- elements to alloy out. Which, if you were to make steel, that today um, whoever the, was the metallurgist who did that would be fired on the spot, and you know, they would have. To <laughs> but back then, it was such an upgrade in what they had. You know, it became this mythical steel. And is the steel once, still today any better, or it's just mythical, and that's why it costs money? No, no, it, it's well one because there's so it's so rare, and that's why it is. It's uh, because it is very beautiful, and no, it's not better than modern steel. Okay, and then how about if somebody wanted uh, just like a really good pocket knife or something like that? A really good pocket knife, actually. Okay, a really good pocket knife is going to cost you a lot of money. The average pocket knife maker, uh, there's a show here in Las Vegas at Planet Hollywood every year that I go to, and I've seen pocket knives go anywhere from 2000 to $20,000 a pocket knife. Whoa, that is crazy. And these are not like collector's items. These are like meant to be functional pieces. No, no. These, these are, well, it depends on your uh, bank account, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. If $15,000 is no big deal to you, then yeah, I guess it's a user. Uh, to me, that's a very, very big deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, pocket knives are incredibly, uh, there's so much work to be done inside a pocket knife than there is a regular knife. Um, I'm actually trying to get take lessons from other knife makers to start making my own pocket knives because I love it because you can have so many different contrasting materials in such a little package that's really becomes a really great work of art. Yeah. And it's something you can use every day. You know, it's amazing. But That's yeah, there's cool. so much incredible amount of work that goes into a pocket knife. So, and since there's so much labor that goes into it, the price is so much higher as well. Yeah, makes sense. So another thing that I imagine would have a high price tag on it is you, you told me that you have people request that you make video game swords for them, which is so oh, yeah. like, I mean, I myself like to play a video game or two so i can totally appreciate this and i love the nerdiness of it um like how much does that cost that somebody that you and how difficult is that to try to replicate a sword that a character uses in a video game uh it it, depending on the sword it can be very challenging because you know they're made to look cool they're not made to look to function and some like show me the picture you know uh I think I, somebody asked me to make the uh, silver sword on uh, this game called Witcher Three, and which I have not bought the game yet because I'm afraid that if I buy it, I'll get sucked into it and I won't get anything done for a month. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so I've been looking at pictures and I see I see them and some of them, you know, they're like okay, that that's just basic long sword and it's just um, dressing, you know, it's just stuff on the st- on the outside that makes that that sword. That that's actually fairly easy to make. But when you get into something like the Skyrim, where they have these, you know, jagged edges and everything, you're like, oh, you got to be kidding me, man. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way that thing will actually function, you know. And so the craftsman in you comes out and go, yeah, I really don't want to put my name on something like that because, you know, that's not something that's functional. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, 
you know, and, and when somebody wants something like a, uh, a 36 inch long sword, all Damascus steel, I quote them a price. And that's usually the end of it. You know, as soon as they, <laughs> Oh, how much? Like, yeah. Ah, yeah. 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 And Jimmy, you don't have your, um, your website up yet. Right. So it, there, there's nowhere people can go to look at your stuff right now. <laughs> well, no, they can go to Facebook or Instagram. Those are only two things. Um, the website has been, like I said, you know, it's a work in progress. All I've got so far, you know, I bought the do- the domains, got the trademarks, stuff of that sort. Okay, cool. Well, um, I'll go ahead and update the half hour intern page when your site does come out and put a link to your site. But for now, I'll go ahead and put a link to your Facebook page. That way, if people want to check out um, some of your knives or if they have like an extra question for you or anything like that, they can hit you up. Yeah, when I'm on Instagram and I start a project, I, I take pictures of the whole process. So if anybody else is out there and are making a knife or making something similar, they can go to my Instagram feed and go, oh, okay, I need, you know, I can make a jig just like this and I'll show the jig uh, to help you do the job. Cool, man. That's awesome. Um, Jimmy, why don't, uh, why don't we leave people off with a piece of advice? So if someone wanted to get started making knives themselves, what, like, what sort of advice would you give them? Don't get caught up in buying all the cool tools. Just go out and do it. Your first knives are going to look terrible. Don't worry about it. I, I I keep my first knife, and I don't let anybody see it but other knife makers. When they come to my shop, and they go, oh, man, mine doesn't look like that. I'm like, hey, look, this is what my first one looked like. You know, it, it's, <laughs> it's horrible. Don't don't worry about it. It's going to be horrible for a very long time. And even when you got thousands of fans going, oh, my God, your work is great, you're still not going to be satisfied with it. So don't get caught up in that. All this just is uh, such good like there. life metaphors. It's great. Yeah, it's just keep you know keep going forward. Just go out and make it. Don't spend up a whole lot of m- money and tools. And as you get going, and as you actually start selling these, the money from selling it will then, of course, buy you the tools. Cool, awesome, man, Jimmy. Thank you so much for taking the time for this. It's really interesting. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. Take care, man. Hey everyone, it's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby. I should totally be on this show then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.